Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds and those who don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast, where our love language is a high NPS score. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you grow from traction to scale. Here, growth is more than just numbers. It's about crafting a future-proof company, premium valuation, and leaders who build a business of significance while living epic, adventurous lives. As Valentine's Day approaches, it is a time when we celebrate affection and appreciation. And just a quick note, it's tomorrow, if you didn't know, so you still have some time to plan something and be a hero. Yeah, for some reason, things like Valentine's Day, birthdays, anniversaries, and, and okay, most every important date seem to sneak up on us. At least it does on me. I don't know about you. I have alarms and reminders set up a week or two ahead of time, always. And I try to remember, but it's one of those things, if it's not on my calendar, it just isn't real. Is, is it that way for you as well? Or is it no big deal? You've got it all down. If it's hard to remember those special dates and occasions in personal lives, I think it's way harder in business. And how can we translate this season of love into the business world to create not just satisfied customers, but true raving fans? And just like any strong relationship, the foundation is built on understanding, commitment, and going the extra mile. Treating your customer relationships with the same care as a Valentine's Day gesture can result in glowing feedback, reduced churn, higher lifetime value, and a really impressive net promoter score, NPS. You hear that all the time. We'll delve into some strategies for deepening customer connections from personalized experiences that show you truly know and value your clients to consistent excellence and reliability that builds trust over time. Now, for most of us, we're looking for a long-term client relationship, not a transactional short-term fling with a customer. We want to forge unbreakable connections, add massive value, and become irreplaceable. Creating raving fans is about much more than transactions and revenue. It's about cultivating love for your brand so deep that clients can't help but share it. There's no stronger endorsement than a client or user who loves your brand so much. They tell their friends, family, colleagues, peers, even strangers on the internet. You know, I've worked with top experts in a quest to create an experience that wins heads and hearts of clients and makes every day feel for them feel like Valentine's Day here in Sasslandia. And the only way to know how we're doing is to keep score. And our success or shortfall is reflected certainly in casual feedback, but also in low or no churn, soaring lifetime value, and rock solid net promoter scores. So here's a quick summary of what I've learned and tried to implement. One is to turn clients into Valentines. Sounds funny. But at the heart of every raving fan customer is a love story between them and your brand. And it starts with understanding and anticipating their needs. Does it sound a lot like a relationship? <laughs> well, it's because it is. And much like planning the perfect Valentine's Day date, you listen, you take note of their likes and dislikes, and you go above and beyond to make them feel special. It's the, the surprise bouquet or the handwritten note that turns a routine interaction into a memorable experience. And I still handwrite two or three thank you notes or appreciation cards every single week. And it sounds small. And honestly, it really is. I should do more. But that week effort is still 100 or 150 more than most other people are doing in a year. It's really easy to make someone feel special because so few even bother. When the, the bar is on the floor, it's not that hard to step over it and, and elevate your game. Second is feedback as love letters. Client relationships, feedback is the love letter. It's an open, honest communication that helps you grow and adapt. And I think it's really important that we cherish these letters. Thank people when they, they send them in, good or bad. Celebrate the good ones. Highlight the great things that your team is doing. Share praise regularly because it becomes contagious among your team. And it's really motivating for everyone because we all crave that recognition. You know, some things that you get won't be positive. It's just the way it is. Don't read those aloud. Don't necessarily share the, every one of those with your team. But each piece of feedback is a stepping stone for improvement. 
take that, internalize. Do they have a point? And they probably have some point in there. Sometimes it gets buried in the, the hate mail, but usually there there is a nugget of truth and they're fine that. And the, the great thing about it is it shows where you can bring more value and deepen the connection. A complaint is an opportunity to shine. Our client success leader has a phrase. She says, deflect and sparkle. And it means turn that negative into a wow. And so they may come into it with a negative perception or, or some negative opinion, but they leave going, wow, this was actually a really good experience. And so you turn that into a sparkle, which I think is just a, a beautiful picture. Third is lifetime value is like everlasting love. Yeah, and maybe we've seen one too many rom-coms, especially this time of year, but high LTV is the equivalent of everlasting love in the business world. Or it's somebody that just sticks around because it's too difficult to switch somewhere else. And that's, I think of banking relationships that way. Yeah, don't necessarily like them, don't hate them. It's so-so, but it's such a pain in the butt to switch. We don't want that. We want raving fans. We want them to stick around because they want to be there. And we create that everlasting love through continuous engagement, understanding, and mutual growth together. It's about evolving with your clients, ensuring as their needs change that you're right there changing alongside them, always relevant, always indispensable. And it's a sad day and it's happened a few times where a client comes and they've been around four, five, six years and they go, I think we've just outgrown you. That sucks. That means that we have not done that. We haven't grown along with them. And the only way to do that and do it well is to stay close to them and make sure that we are staying relevant, that we're, we really become indispensable because we're adding so much value that they could never leave. And that's the kind of relationship I think most of us want with our clients. So as Valentine's Day rolls by, and remember tomorrow, take a moment to reflect on how we can make our clients feel loved and valued all year long. By creating those raving fans, we're not just boosting our metrics, it's a side benefit, but we're building a community of brand lovers ready to stand with us through thick and thin. And there's plenty of that in the business journey. So here's to love, loyalty, and a little bit of magic in every client interaction. Our expert last week was Brady Jensen, founder of Aggregate Insights. We talked about solving the trust problem between marketing and sales. If you've ever had an experience where reality in the field doesn't match the playbook, this is a great episode. I think we've all had that happen. And our founder last Tuesday was James Roth, Chief Revenue Officer at Zoom Info. We talked about how sales has changed, what's working today, and the personal growth required to successfully transition from individual contributor to executive leadership. If you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest today is Michael Cam Leitner, founder of two SaaS companies in the marketing and social media space. One is walls.io and the other is swat.io. And this is the perfect day because walls is actually a wall of love from your customers. Very cool. It's a social app where they can post accolades, testimonials, and more. It's a great concept. But even cooler than that is Michael has bootstrapped both companies to large, high-performing teams, has an executive leadership team, and he has been able to step out of the day-to-day -day operations, and, and they're continuing to just do amazing work. This is what healthy B2B SaaS looks like. It's profitable growth, systemized processes, and true freedom. So welcome a founder who is building smart, Michael Kemleitner. Hey, Michael. Welcome to SaaS Fuel. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year uh, to all the listeners. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your background. Multi-time founder, bootstrapper, which I absolutely love, and running a couple of SaaS companies even right now. Yes, uh, of course. Uh, my original background is a web developer, uh, like a technical person for a very long time, like more than 14 years ago, started to create uh, marketing applications uh, on the web, then got super excited about the possibilities that were opened up by Facebook and other platforms by opening their API, which was allowing developers, or small independent developers like me to put their little marketing or uh, apps and games and whatever on top of Facebook, on top of my 
space and other applications. And that basically got, got, got me going and got my entrepreneurial juices flowing. And it led me to found a small boutique software agency that was dealing mostly with software development on social media platforms. And that again led to the creation or to the inception or to the genesis of my, of two product ideas, which later have become my two bootstrap companies, as you already said, correct. So it was from independent indie web developer to a small little boutique agency and ending up for now, ending up at the two bootstrap SaaS businesses that I'm running. First, the first business is SWOT.io, SWOT.io. It's a social media management tool. You can think about uh, Swarayo like Buffer or Hootsuite, but for larger enterprises, so for social media teams, marketing teams that are running and managing usually a big number of social media channels for different brands or different markets on different social media platforms and who have to do a lot of community management, content publishing, cross-channel analytics, everything that keeps a social media manager up until the late night usually uh, can be done with our product Swarayo. That's the first company. And my second uh, brainchild, my second baby is the company I'm currently actively working on as a full-time CEO. And uh, that's walls.io. It's a user-generated content platform that allows marketers to collect social media content from your customers, from your community, from your fans curate the content and then use it for different marketing purposes, either by putting it uh, as a widget on your website, your mobile app, your e-commerce store, or use it on physical screens, like a TV screen that you would put in the lobby of your office or just hang in your office. That's great. I think both of them brilliant concepts and they fit together really well. So, yeah. Really so, interesting. Yeah. Thanks a lot. So, of course, uh, of course, both products, both companies, because now they're, of course, meanwhile, they have become their own independent companies, represent basically where I'm coming from, where my roots uh, are at. And that is social media marketing. So, uh, of course, both fit very well together. While uh, Swadio is uh, mostly about managing a company's or a brand's own social media presence, their own channels, Wazio is all about the content produced by everyone else, by the community, by everyone out there. So yeah, that's a good. That's a that's two ways to see see the social media space and how to work work in the social media space as a brand. I like it. With SWAT.io, what made you go after the enterprise? Because it seems like a lot of companies in that space they start out really small and then try to scale up, and you really focused on the enterprise and you know, have a great presence in that market. So I could I could tell you or I could lie to you and say oh I had this big master plan almost 10 <laughs> years ago to go for the of enterprise course. market market space because I had better chances there and because whatever but it's just not true the truth is uh, yeah <laughs> and uh, I'm known to be a frank and honest person so no the truth is that Swadio initially, it wasn't clear for me back then if Swadio is going to be a feasible, profitable, standalone company or product. So for a very long time, I was actually fighting with myself. Is this just a side project? While I was still doing the agency business, right? So we were still doing agency business, custom software development for companies. And on the other hand, we were doing the first Swadio prototype. So it was for quite a long time not clear is this a side project? Can we, if we are lucky, maybe sell it to a handful of customers and have a little bit of scale? But back then, it was almost uh, unthinkable to believe, hey, this can be a standalone company with now more than 40 employees and really many hundreds and hundreds of customers. I didn't have that, that, that farsight or that vision back then, I will be honest. And so I did what I, what I knew best, and that was working with the larger companies that were our agency customers already. So we were selling the software the SaaS product basically to our existing customer base in the agency. And those tended to be larger companies, larger brands, because it was still early days. Social media was pretty new back then. Social media marketing was pretty new. And it was mostly the biggest companies that were, were active on this space. So without having a grand master plan or a big understanding, frankly, of uh, go-to-market and how to define your ICP, that's all things I had to learn and luckily was learning later on. But back then it was all very organic. 
beginning. I had an agency business. I had a product idea and I made the product <laughs> idea fit the existing customer base from the agency. That's the, that's the honest answer. And that led us to bigger companies or to enterprise uh, companies. And that also pretty much defined our core target audience in terms of geography as well. So we started out to be active mostly in the German-speaking countries. Again, because we were having this agency customer base uh, already. That's really smart. Take it. Did you build a product originally for internal use and then decided to sell it? Or how did that come about? Not really internal use, but we had this one big client in the agency, which was uh, interestingly another agency, a brand agency who were super <laughs> early, super early in Austria and in Germany to establish social media services for brands. And they originally approached us with the question or with the idea or with the request really to build a very very crude but fundamentally working prototype for all these things for community management and stuff like that so it was not built for our internal use but it was like semi-internal for this agency customer that we had and really the first the first iteration of uh, of what later became uh, it didn't have a name it, it didn't even have its own domain registered it was really just like a, a subdomain something like tool dot whatever tool dot agency dot name or something like that uh, and that's how it stayed for at least a year so it was internal use and from there we saw oh or from there we got the, the idea but actually it makes could make sense to productize the whole thing and that's what we did what was that moment like when you realized that hey i've got something here that can go out there and be a standalone product and, and this is not just a side project but can really come become a significant business so it, it took me quite a while to get to that point to be honest and to and to really jump into the cold water and say okay let's take this chance and and really try it i think on a spectrum of, of risk awareness i think most founders have a natural appetite for risk and i, I would say that's also true for me but still on the spectrum of risk awareness or risk happiness in funds i'm probably still more on the lower end so it took me quite a while to really to really understand and see the chance in hindsight i think that's still okay i'm not I'm not saying that was a sure. wrong decision it, it sometimes it takes the time it takes and uh, to build something uh, meaningful and, and great so the way i approached it back then was to gradually shift over the resources that I had, the engineering resources, later marketing resources, shift them over from the agency business, which I wasn't so much interested in anyway anymore, and shift the resources slowly and gradually over to the product. So the same happened with revenue. Agency revenue was uh, scaling down over the course of a year or two. And meanwhile, we were lucky enough that the product revenue slowly ramped up. So it was a, a process. It took at least one or two years, which allowed me to get comfortable with the idea of not running an agency anymore, but running a product business, hopefully scale, scalable product business. But it, it took its time uh, to, to get myself convinced that this actually makes sense. That's really smart. And, and I like the, the balance of going at it slowly. The opposite of that, you see all the time founders who, who build something and they get the MVP done and, and they're out there trying to raise money or, or just go to market and everything is placed. All the chips are placed on this one bet that this product yeah. is, is going to be the next big thing. Yeah, I think this is a, really a question of mentality or of character. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I think it's a fundamental question that everyone who wants to start their own business at one point will have to answer and decide for, for him or herself. Am I, am I, do I want to go that all in route? And do I want to, to that the same, and the same question is of course relevant for bootstrapping versus uh, fundraising, right? Uh, that's also right. a very fundamental right. question, right? And it's connected to the question of how fast do I want to go to market? Do I need to be super fast uh, or can I give myself, my team, my customers a, a little bit more time. And again, of course, sometimes I, I wonder what would have happened if I 10 years ago would have picked another approach, would have said, okay, you know what, let's completely uh, scrap the agency business from today to tomorrow let's stop it completely let's move everything to the product and let's just hope that we can ramp up revenue fast enough so that we are still in business in six months 
maybe it would have gone uh, okay, maybe not. I don't know. But but doing it a little bit slower and and on the safer side, I think for me, for my character, for my mentality, it proved to be the right the right decision. Yeah. Anytime it works, it's always a good decision. So whether you go yeah. all in or whether you take yes. it a little bit slower, I mean, when it works, you're a genius. Yeah. Yes. Uh, like hind- uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. And yeah. <laughs> that's true. Always. Talk about walls.io. How did you come up with that idea? Yeah, we are now like fast forward a few years and Swario was already productized and already starting to get some initial traction. And what happened next is that I was still doing a little bit of uh, agency business on the side. So this was uh, more like at the end of the phase out of the agency. And then something funny or something funny happened. Uh, we came up with another idea, uh, <laughs> the idea for Walsoyo. And and again, it was something that, that we basically thought, like me and my team, uh, it's a nice little side project. Let's do it. It was for a birthday party of, of an industry friend uh, of ours or of mine, where we just had this idea to set up this video wall that would that would collect social media content around the party, around the event. Of course, back then it was mostly about Twitter, but also platforms which maybe some of the younger listeners or viewers are not even familiar with anymore. Things like Flickr, which is now owned by Yahoo, I think still, or Foursquare, which was a popular uh, location-based service. So for this party, we would collect all these posts that that were uh, uh, creating buzz around the party and then displaying it on a video screen just to, just to get the social media flywheel going and, and let other people see the interactions and then hopefully encourage them to post themselves. And that worked out pretty well. And it was a great success. And the next day, uh, after sobering up from the party, I was there again, having a potential product idea and had to answer myself the question, do I just want to do I just want to let this uh, idea sit on a shelf? Or do I want to start investing resources in building out this prototype uh, into a product? And again, Again, the smart or the the rational decision would probably have been to say, no, let's leave the second idea. Let's focus on Swadio. I already have one promising, but very still very immature back then business uh, at hand. Let's focus on this one and let's not distract myself with a a second product idea. Unfortunately, I did not make the rational decision, but, but, but gave into excitement. And so that's, that is when I started, started to productize walls.io, which then later became uh, the second company. It was a good decision because now, uh, now I am lucky that I ended up with two, with two independent, profitable, successful boot businesses but of course it was also like it was a very fine it's it was a fine line to go between failure and success to really split not just myself and my focus but of course also our company resources between the two products i think i can be quite lucky and humble and happy about uh, the fact that we could make it work uh, not just once and twice and i specifically say we because although i was a single founder i'm a single founder it's of course only possible by having a really good team uh, on both products, good, great engineers, uh, a great CTO who later became my CEO at Swadio. So I was really blessed to have a good team in place. Otherwise, I think trying to bootstrap two products, two companies at the same time, that's probably otherwise would uh, never have worked. That's really good. I like that being able to to take one that's successful and then you know, roll into another one, and then you have that team there that uh, continues on promoting that CTO into the the leadership role. Yeah, the transition for you when you went uh, from being a doer to leading a team to then leading an organization. Oh, that's a learning process that is still, that is still, the, the learning curve is still very steep for me. So I would say I'm still at 10% of the way done or something like that. <laughs> Look, I think, again, this is something that, that is typical for my mentality or my, my background that I don't see myself as an, as a, an expert in any specific area, but more like a universalist, someone who, who can 
is interested in and can adapt and, and dive into many topics. I think that's a highly important requirement or attribute for, especially for bootstrappers, where you really like jump from one role to the other. After a few years, I, I really had to stop uh, working on code, developing myself. A, because I realized uh, that I'm just not the, the best coder in the world, never was. But I had my days, I had my good days, of course, but, but I had to realize this is not the, what, that this is not my core strength. And then I moved on and then I did some marketing because there was no one else doing marketing. And then once I could hire someone to do marketing properly, then I, I let them do that. And then I went to, to start doing a little bit of sales until I could hire another person who was more qual qualified with doing sales. And so I was like basically hopping from, from role to role, whatever was necessary and needed at the specific stage of one of the two companies and I that 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 mix and that yeah that, that that constant change in my professional life that I basically have to reinvent my role I don't know once every two years or something like that and that keeps keeps things definitely exciting for me and I wouldn't want to have it any other way but of course there's uh, always constant learning involved if you have to dive sure. in new topics every two years you have to be realistic and, and honest with yourself that you are starting these things uh, as a newbie and that means a lot of learning a lot of a lot of trial and error many things go wrong of course in the beginning the only thing that you can really do to avoid this is build up and build up a good peer group of, of other entrepreneurs of other executives who, who are willing to share and help you out with their with their knowledge and their experience otherwise it's really just yeah trying trial and error and see what 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 somehow works out one key reason i've been successful is fresh outside perspective from experts and fellow founders that are in the trenches and if you would like an on-demand CXO team, a community of founders and tools to make your business world-class, check out Champion Leadership Group. It's the ultimate resource for SaaS leaders to continue to develop themselves, scale their companies, and never walk alone on the journey. We're kicking off a new scale-up accelerator this month, and I would love for you to be a part of it. If you're stuck at your current revenue level, this is for you. If you feel like the world's best kept secret, we got your back. And if you are crushing it already, but you know that your company has more in the tank, this is definitely for you. Now is the time to elevate from success to significance. You'll gain access to a fractional C-suite team, a community of scaling SaaS founders, and the SaaS fuel operating system built into software to make your business world-class and support a premium valuation. Isn't it time to upgrade from traction to scale? Learn more at championleadership.com. It's where leaders evolve and companies transform. Apply to join the next cohort today, championleadership.com. Yeah. You talk about that, the transition pretty easily. And it sounds like it was easy to move from one to the next. And for me, it's always been really difficult to let things go and, yeah. and delegate. Is that something that is, is a challenge for you as well? Or is that something that's come easy? It's absolutely a, a challenge. So, <laughs> so that's, I, I didn't want to, uh, I'm sorry if I make it sound uh, so easy and I don't want to make, uh, I don't want to give uh, our listeners the, the impression because you're right, it's, it, it is not uh, uh, the learning curve or the, the requirement to, to dive into new fields very often is not easy. I, I already mentioned that. It's also not easy and I, can, I get to your point uh, regarding delegation. I will get to that but before that I wanted to say it's also interesting how how companies or organizations change at certain sizes. It's a completely yeah. different way to work together, to collaborate if you're a team of five to ten people. I felt like there was a big there was a big change around 20, a headcount of 20. That's where I really found out for, where I felt a very big change because for me until 20, 15 to 20 maybe, I was still having one-to-one -one work relationships with everybody. I was still like really knowing everybody very good or working together directly in one or two projects. Once you are at 20, that's probably not the case anymore. There's suddenly a layer in between in, in many cases. So you lose a little bit the direct contact with everyone in your team. And 
I think it's the same. Someone, somebody said it's these, these changes come every time the company size, uh, the headcount doubles, like with 40 to yes. 50, that's another big change, which probably with 100, I didn't experience that yet, but I can very much uh, relate to that experience. It's, by the way, also mm -hmm. one reason why, why later on I decided to focus on my second company, Walls.io, because it's still smaller, because I got to know myself better and, and realized that I actually prefer to, wa to work in the smaller team. Um, because I really enjoy uh, having very direct uh, relations with almost everyone uh, uh, on my team. So that was a bit like a long-winded uh, answer. You originally asked for, for delegation, right? <laughs> yes, yes. I, it was a very good answer. Very good answer. But yeah, delegation, is that something that is easy for you? Or yeah. is that a challenge as well? It is, it's getting better. <laughs> I would put it like this. So, so it, it needs a good uh, Yeah, it needs constant work or a constant reminder. I have to constantly remind myself to to get better at, at this. I did almost a year ago. I read a good, a great book. Um, I'm not sure if I can plug that here. The book is called "Buy Back Your Time." Yes, yes. It's very good you know, yeah. I think it's by Dan Martell, if I'm not completely. Right. Yeah, yeah. So anybody listening, thinking about delegation, this is really a great recommendation. Actually, I want to, actually, I, I plan to read it regularly, like maybe once a year to remind myself of how important the delegation is. The problem, of course, I think what most people see with delegation, or at least for me, is the initial like barrier that you're actually, of course, have to invest time first before you can save time, right? So you can't just hand over a task and hope that it gets done properly. No, right. of, of course, you first have to invest time by training the person who is who you want to uh, delegate to by uh, giving them feedback. Yes, also by checking in on them and uh, making sure that the results are right, by documenting everything. Uh, so obviously, there's, uh, there's first an upfront investment before it pays off for yourself. That's, of course, a trivial insight, but it's, I think, what keeps most people, or at least that's for me, the case it's for me, that, that keeps us from delegating because we are yeah we are afraid of that uh, upfront time investment i think you need to that's that's the only that, that that's where what I have to work on still to break through this mental barrier and, and just understand and remind myself that it's the only way to, to scale your own time or your own uh, impact uh, on the company or on the organization by breaking through this initial barrier or this initial upfront investment. And of course, and again, reading this, this book, is if, if someone here in the audience uh, is also battling with this, I can just again uh, recommend the book because it gives you new perspectives on how to break through it simple techniques like recording playbooks basically that means that you would use you would use a screen recording tool or you can even use zoom for that you can have a zoom sure. call with yourself and just record it and just just uh, do the task with screens with recorded screen put it somewhere on your wiki on your notion or whatever you're using as a knowledge base and and document the process there which can then be a very easy way for someone else to take over and replicate what what you are doing Doing. things like that i think it's definitely it's worth it's worth it investing in that and where where i really where i really saw how this can play out and how it yeah and how much time it can save me and make me free for other things is of course when you do this kind of uh, delegation with a personal assistant or a virtual assistant, if you prefer it that way. That is basically then where you as a founder or as an executive are, of course, really challenged to, to make right and to fulfill that promise of uh, documenting and delegation. Once you have this, this virtual assistant working for you, then you really have to follow through with that. That's really smart. And you're right. Having that assistant there doing things and, and do, if, if you're one of the things in the book, if, if you don't have an assistant, you are the assistant. And I think that was really interesting, just in perspective, because if you're doing those simple tasks that are repetitive, that can easily be handled by somebody else who would love to do that, and maybe it's something you don't like to do, then you know, why, why do you keep doing it? But as founders, as leaders, a lot of times we hold on to those things. Uh, because other people won't do them right, meaning they won't do them our way, or think that yeah. they were really good at it. 
And we can talk on for, I could talk on, talk about uh, this specific to topic for hours. Please stop me if you want to move on. And what I said before, one big reason why we have, many people have a hard time delegating is yes, is this understanding of the upfront time investment. Uh, I think another big reason is that we, we are too much looking for perfection. Although if you're honest, nobody is so perfect. If I do my, the task, it's also not 100% perfect, right? But even, even if you accept 99% or whatever, that's not the point. If, you're, if, you, if the person you're delegating the task to can do 80, 85%, we have to be fine with that. <laughs> we have to yeah. be fine with that. We have to give feedback the next time they can make maybe 90%. They will never do it exactly the same way we do. That's okay. Uh, we, have to, we have to live with that. But, but we can progress in, in that direction and it's definitely possible by giving good quality uh, feedback. Also, it doesn't matter if the person you're delegating to, if it takes them a little bit more time than it would take you to do it. That's probably will sure. always be the case, especially if you're, especially for entrepreneurs who tend to have uh, the quality of being very efficient when working, at least At least I would uh, clap on my own back and, and, and say that about me, that efficiency is something we, uh, I would claim for myself. It's okay if your assistant or the person you're delegating to takes, I don't know, even if it takes them twice as long as it takes you. The main point is that you have it off your table and, and, and free up your time for what really matters. So I think that's another barrier that we are striving too much for perfection and for being super fast and super efficient as we would be once you get rid of these of these of these barriers which are probably never achievable unless you are lucky and find that assistant wunderkind that can i don't know this prodigy that can do everything exactly like you like this uh, maybe if you clone yourself if you have a little mini me right, that uh, right. really <laughs> but that's not going to happen let's be honest so it's yeah. important to have like realistic realistic goals aim for 80% and then slowly ramp it up maybe by giving feedback to 85%, 90%. And then you're there. That's, that's, that's more than enough. That's cool. Yeah, that's really good. Now, a lot of times they'll even do it better. So we think that it's not 100%, but it, ultimately they do it even better and get faster. And like, yeah, wow, yeah, I have yeah, no yeah, idea yeah. it would be that good. Yes, uh, that exactly. You will be surprised. That's absolutely true. So I actually started working with a virtual assistant only only a few months ago. And so for me, it's also, again, it's another learning curve, another thing that I, I, I want to figure out. And uh, it doesn't work from day one, but it's getting better. And you're right, since you were mentioning it, now, mentioning it now, there's, of course, also things that they do much more carefully than you would do. They would, where you... I don't know, let's talk about travel book, uh, travel organization, travel planning, where you would probably invest only five minutes in, and then pick the first flight that you find on whatever search engine you're using. They are much more careful. They are thorough. They compare prices. They find the best, whatever. So, so you can also, another interesting strategy is to, there's, I think everyone has these tasks where we tend to procrastinate on for whatever reason. Absolutely, we are blocked. Yeah. We are blocked. I don't know. Let's see if I can come up with an example for me actually it is travel planning uh, i don't enjoy doing it and uh, I, i'm sometimes just frozen or i don't know i can't i can't move on uh, like i have decision paralysis sometimes i know i have three options to go at this date or in the next date whatever and then i'm like, like basically I'm like paralyzed uh Uh, and then I, I move it along and along. And then two days before the trip, I think, ah, now I really have to book the flight. Uh, and, and everyone, I think many people have these kinds of uh, things. Something in your backlog that you just keep on pushing on, usually because you just don't enjoy doing it very much. The perfect target or perfect uh, thing that you can, you, you should delegate pretty quickly to an assistant. For me, it's travel planning. For others, it might be gift shopping, for example, or whatever. I think everybody has these things where you just can't get them done. Yeah. You decided to bootstrap both of your companies. And I think that is a brilliant choice. How did you decide to do that versus go out and raise funds? So again, it gets back to the way the two products were were brought to light uh, first without having the specific plan to make these, these larger, bigger companies. 
more hey maybe it's a side project so with that in mind of course fundraising wasn't even wasn't even an, an option secondly 10 years ago even a little bit more than 10 years ago in Austria Vienna fundraising like uh, going to a VC was not a very typical thing to do luckily that has changed in the last 10 years Austria now has a vibrant startup uh, ecosystem it has a handful or two handful of good VCs even also, you can, of course, fundraise uh, outside of Austria easier than 10 years ago. But back then, it wasn't a natural thing to do, to be honest. And only years later, I made the conscious decision not to try fundraising. For reasons I already partly mentioned before, because because uh, you have to think about very carefully what's the right approach, the right also the right uh, scale or growth trajectory for your company and how that matches with you as a founder personality. What I mean by that is what you usually buy with VC money, with funding, with external funding, is a faster or a steeper growth trajectory, right? But it comes at an, which is exciting, of course. Who who doesn't want to sit on a rocket ship? Hopefully it's a rocket ship that, that right. takes off. So that sounds very exciting, of course, and it was exciting to me as well. But... It comes at the cost. It comes at the cost of giving up control. It comes at the cost of living in a more unstable environment. Your team size has to scale up quick, more, way more quicker. You will have a lot of bad experiences with, with hiring the wrong people because you have to hire way too fast. You have your investor sitting in your back and, and demanding a quarterly or monthly financial reports that you can't give really because you have no clue about financial reports. In the worst case, you will have to raise money again, most likely, because you're growing so fast that your profitability is usually not there yet which means you have to think about the next fund funding round and at one point of course you become you become a passenger in you can become a passenger in your own company and someone else might right. uh, call the shots i'm painting it quite I'm painting a quite extreme or negative picture here. Of course, it can go uh, also very well, but you sure, have to be aware sure. of this possibility once you go the once you go the, the funding uh, the way to uh, the funding approach. Bootstrapping on the other side for me was m m a better match with my personality. Having a slower growth trajectory, but always hundred percent control, stability uh, in terms of in terms of my company, in terms of my team, and always being able to make key decisions uh, on my own without having to to consult or without having to uh, yeah, uh, let others uh, decide that the investors. So I think if you put the cards on the table, I think a every founder can. Can, should be able to make a decision which is the, the sure. right model for them to go. For me, this is one of the decisions where I'm absolutely positive that, that I picked the right way for myself. That's good. And with the products coming out of the agency, you're almost your own angel investor. And now you you're, could, you're an angel yeah. investor in other companies too. You could say so, yeah. And I understand, of course, that I, I, it was a blessing, of course, that I had the boutique, tiny, small, but still profitable agency in the background, which allowed me to basically bootstrap. Not everyone has these this options. And for some businesses, especially when you think about B2C companies, venture funding is the only way, the only possible way to go. So, of course, you have to take that with a grain of salt, what I've said about bootstrapping and how cool it is yeah yeah but sorry i did digress now right uh, you mentioned uh, the angel investing right yeah yes yes you're an angel investor like what criteria do you use when deciding what startups to support how do you pick the winners and markets crowded first of all it has yet to be seen if i'm uh, the cap <laughs> my capability of picking winners is not is by far not decided yet so i'm not sure i'm not sure if i can answer that if i can answer that question no but but seriously i think i'm very optimistic and very i have quite some good uh, companies in my honestly small and over uh, small but growing a uh, uh, little uh, angel portfolio where i'm very uh, excited and bullish about but one thing is one thing you have to be also very realistic and clear about if you I, I, I did my first uh, angel investment almost four or five years ago. That means, meanwhile, I already also had to experience uh, the fact that uh, some of my investments are not are not here anymore. So they had to close shop for whatever reason. So when you start out investing or angel investing, many people, including myself, you have this this great <laughs> this great idea that you think, oh, I'm uh, of course I'm smarter than everyone else. I will pick the winners, I, and I will I will de I will 
defy that typical only one in 10 startups work out rate. I will be better. I will pick, I will have a much better. Of course, it's not true. It's just, <laughs> and the earlier you invest, the harder it would be to, to pick winners. I think the first thing that you have to, if you're interested in investing that early stage, at that early stage, of course, you have to realize that the basic law that most of the investments will probably not turn out uh, very well is just true, which makes it to an extent makes it a numbers game. So that means you have to, you have to have, you need to think uh, about a port portfolio, otherwise it's most likely not uh, going to, to work well, which means depending on the depth of your pockets, at least for me, that means uh, I can only do very small, small uh, tickets, very small investments. I need to have a certain number of investments, let's say 10 or 20. And I'm not there yet, of course, slowly ramping up. And uh, since I don't have these deep pockets, it means only very small tickets, which again means that usually I have to sell myself as an angel investor and sell myself. I need to be perceived by a founder as like the smart money. So it makes mostly sense if I can contribute something to a startup beyond the money, like uh, my experience in B2B SaaS or in social media marketing. So that already narrows the potential, the, the list of potential startups I, I can meaningfully invest in. So that was all some learnings that I had to, to make in the first few years. And again, I'm uh, like so many other things, I'm completely realistic that I'm just in the beginning of the, at the beginning of the learning curve in terms of angel investments. And I think I still need to answer your question. What does it, so I, that was a very long winded yeah. way to say it's for me uh, very hard to explain how to pick winners. <laughs> the only thing that I can say, since we are talking about very early stage uh, investing, I think for me, it's 80% about the team. There's yeah. always these the three aspects, team, market, and, and the, the actual product. I think the actual product that you can almost forget about it because in most cases where you invest that early, the product will change, they will pivot, or they will yeah. do something completely different two years in two years. So I wouldn't look at the product too much. Of course, market, yes, it makes sense to to be an excite, in an exciting market. Yeah, you, I wouldn't deny that, but still the number one thing I invest in is the founder team. These need to be ideally uh, complementing diverse team of two, three or four, something like that founders who I really believe uh, in that they can do something great together, whether it's this product idea or the thing they will do afterwards uh, when the first thing doesn't work. That's the most important factor. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm the same way. I'm, I absolutely invest in the, the people and the, the product. And you're right. It, it does change. Yeah, yeah, it, it morphed over time and the market may change, but the, the people, you, you find great people that have good vision and can execute and the rest of it, you know, it it'll change, but it, it doesn't necessarily matter as much. It's all about the people, especially early on. Yeah, absolutely. So, like I mean, like I said, I don't have a, a, a real track record to show uh, off yet. Uh, <laughs> honest with that, I had uh, one very, uh, I had one significant success very early on with where I was participating in, uh, in an exit uh, of a startup that I had like a tiny share of just because I was investing sweat capital. Basically, I didn't have any money back then, which really paid off. But this is one case where it was exactly like you said, the first iteration of the product was something completely different than what they were doing the exit a uh, few years later. Like it had almost nothing to do with the first uh, product. Yeah. And, but to my credit, even back then I, I had this feeling like this founding team is just really amazing it was like a, a team of three who were really very complimentary and 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 i even made a little memo to myself back then that uh, that said the number one reason is the team and it turned out to be true it's just just one anecdote but it proves your point or it could yeah it couldn't i agree yeah. with you. what do you think the biggest challenges SaaS founders face today? What are those and how do they overcome the challenges to build something that's successful? I think, so, so you mean the challenge before you go to market in, in like finding the great product idea and finding product market fit, basically, you mean? or It could be that, just what are the, yeah. the biggest challenges? It could be SaaS yeah. it could be later on, it could yeah. be scaling from yeah. 10 to 20 to 100 people. Yeah, what, yeah. what do you think that the big challenges are? 
Yeah, I think for especially for B2B SaaS, and I'm usually referring to B2B when I talk about SaaS. Of course, sure. there's B2C as well, but for me, it's most B2B. I think I think the biggest the biggest issue, the biggest problem that most of the SaaS B2B SaaS founders in my network, in my peer group, are reporting or talking about in the previous one or two years, is simply put that it's that it became way more difficult to uh, to grow revenue. So this is of course to, for a big a big part of that a big part of the reason of course is the the, the macroeconomic situation which uh, hasn't become easier but it's also about uh, saturation of so many software categories uh, having so many competitors many of the existing go-to-market channels like uh, content marketing being saturated so Revenue growth has become just way more harder. Making closing new business has become way more harder. Sales cycles have become longer for so many companies. Budgets have become tighter, especially in the last one or two years. People are trying to to consolidate or to decrease their SaaS bills, even big companies. So I think that is that is something that is challenging for for a lot of B two B SaaS companies. There's of course always outliers. Uh, you might be in a super Super hot category like I has been in the last 12 months, where this might not apply. But I think for 90% of the B2B SaaS companies, I think the founders would agree with me that uh, last one or two years, revenue growth has been the number one issue or challenge. Sure, sure. Where can people learn more about you and about Walls.io online and also SWAT.io? Yes, of course. So I'm most active on LinkedIn. So you can find me there. Just uh, look up my name. And that's uh, Michael Kamleitner. I hope you will be so kind to add my, maybe you could add the link here because it's a German name and might not be easy to. to yeah, we'll link it all in the show notes. Perfect. Perfect. You can also, if you have any questions or want to get in touch super directly, you can also email me. That's michael at walls.io. And walls.io obviously is also the website of the comp- my second company where I'm working full-time right now. My first company is SWAT, SWAT.io. That's the social media management tool. So if you're interested in the social media tool space, I would be happy if you check out one or even both of my companies. Uh, get in touch on LinkedIn if you want to discuss B2B SaaS, uh, social media marketing, if you bootstrapping, ancient investing. So that's the, basically the, the biggest topics that we also covered today. I'm always happy to, to enlarge my network there. Fantastic. Michael, great conversation. I really appreciate having you on SaaS Fuel. I, appreciate, I, can only, I can only copy that, of course. I'm super happy to be here today. Thanks for the opportunity. It was a fun conversation. It's great to kick off the year with being a guest on your show. Thanks a lot. Thanks again, Michael, for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. You can learn more about Michael and his companies, walls.io and swat.io. And of course, check him out on social as well. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. Every link we talked about, every resource we talked about right there, sasfuel.com. And remember, we have full episodes, shorts, training, and more on our YouTube channel. Leaders help leaders. And you can do a two-for-one in this case by sharing the podcast with a friend. They will appreciate it, and I absolutely do appreciate it because that's how we grow. So thank you for sharing. And hey, everyone who shares this week gets Cupid's Arrow Laser Pointer. It is perfect for highlighting your significant other's best traits. Or hey, if you don't have one, you can play an irresistibly romantic game of Catch the Light with one of your pets. Go join us Thursday on our Sassfield Expert Series where my guest is Kenneth Burke. He is VP of Marketing for Text Request, who has fueled growth from startups to billion-dollar enterprises He'll be here to share his secrets on mastering SaaS marketing and building a fan base via text. And then next Tuesday, we have founder, actually three-time founder, Mike Adams. He is founder and executive chairman of Grain.com, which is an incredible tool that I've actually started using since we talked. And so we'll talk about startup wins and losses, crazy acquisition stories, go-to-market, and generative AIs. I will see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SAS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts 
And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sassfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Let's go!